Welcome to the HVMN Podcast. What we do with our bodies today becomes the foundation of who we are tomorrow. This is Health via Modern Nutrition. Welcome to this week's episode of the HVMN Podcast. This is Jeff Wu. And I'm really excited to have Danny Vega on the program today. We just taped a really awesome episode on his podcast a few weeks back. So excited to flip the table and dive into Danny's story, Danny's background, and his experimentation with all things keto, but beyond that human performance. Danny, really great to have you on the program. Oh man, thanks. I agree. I'm so excited to have another conversation with you. For folks who aren't familiar with their background or the Fat Fueled podcast, to give your perspective of how you entered the space, what drew you to human performance, and thinking about how to live, you know, quote unquote, a well-lived life. If we go all the way back to when I was like seven, eight, nine years old, um, I had this really cool after-school care um, teacher that that was a bodybuilder, and I, I still I remember even when I was five, I brought this activity home that I did, and it was like one of those where you say your name, your favorite color, and what you wanted to be when you grow up. And I I said I want to be a strong man, <laughs> so I was always interested in just being strong. And I grew up in the '80s, so I was you know watching the Schwarzenegger movies and the Stallone movies. And um, it's funny because you know those those guys, a lot of those guys are bodybuilder types. But as I got older, I was more interested in performance, and I always trained as an athlete um, I was fortunate enough to play college football played football at Columbia University got my master's at University of Florida in applied physiology it was called the human performance program which was um, the first one of the first two Texas was the other one it was a non-research based master's program which was much more practical hands-on stuff for people who either wanted to go into athletic training or strength and conditioning and didn't want to have to defend a thesis and and do the whole research thing. Um, and so uh, I was very fortunate again when I was there. We won the national championship in 2006 and I was a grad assistant for the basketball team. And um, the the week I was graduating, my, my graduation, the assistant head coach got the job at VCU, Coach Anthony Grant, and he took me with him. And I found myself at, at 26 years old, as the strength, the head strength and conditioning coach for VCU basketball. And we did amazing things there. We broke every record in school history, conference history. Uh, we beat Duke in the national tournament. And, you know, after about a year and a half of that, like the reality hit that, you know, I wasn't making that much money and I, I went and I chased money. So I got into pharmaceutical sales and within a few years I, I switched over to device sales. I just found there was more prestige, there's more money to be made. And, you know, then in 2016, you know, after doing this for nine, 10 years, I, I started the ketogenic diet and it just reignited my passion for nutrition and fitness. And um, two months later, I was somehow found myself co-hosting the Ketogenic Athlete podcast um, and that ran for several years. And then, you know, just kind of made my name in this space by, you know, just focusing on the performance benefits of the ketogenic diet. I was looking at, you know, what are the applications? What are the different sport types? And we spoke to everyone from pro fighters and um, NFL athletes to 
arm wrestlers and through hikers and just any any type of physical activity and how the ketogenic athlete or the ketogenic diet could be used. And um, since then, I've, I've still maintained that interest in the performance side, especially building muscle, how to match your training to your diet, how to harness the the incredible power of this ketogenic state um, while still taking into consideration the fact that you're you're completely removing one of the most important fuel sources for especially for intense exercises um, but then I've also you know you start doing better and and this is the journey a lot of people take where you 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 do better for yourself and then you realize that maybe there's a little bit of a incongruence with the way you're living and the way you're feeding your kids and you know we started our kids as little paleo kids like you know, breastfeeding, you know, we weaned them. Both of their first foods were raw liver and soft boiled egg yolks. Um, but I got into powerlifting for a few years and I was able to compete at a really high level there. I hit the top 25 in the country in my weight class. But those years it was like back to carbs. And when I, when I started doing the ketogenic diet, I, I just felt so much better. And, you know, our kids, we still had a few issues that, you know, just kind of um, mindless living where you're, you know, you're driving through the drive through. And, you know, I'm sure any parent listening to this would understand this. You know, it's convenient. Um, it definitely keeps them out of your hair when you're in the car. Uh, <laughs> play with this toy, eat your burger and fries and, you know, please leave me alone, you know. But we had issues, you know, the kids had, you know, everything from asthma to uh, eczema, you know, even uh, behavioral issues. And in 2017, we started them on this. And then 2018, we started the Fat Field Family Podcast. And that's the other side of this, where we're just trying to show families how to do this from a practical standpoint, how to how to, of course, do nutrition and fitness with your kids, but even more important, we share, you know, our parenting style, our education style, all of these other really, really interesting topics that, that we are really passionate about. And we feel that they're just all integrated together. And it's like, you can't just focus on one. It's the whole package. So that's what I've been up to, man. It's like, I guess that's the, the whole story condensed. Yeah, that's uh, definitely an interesting journey. I want to ask, um, what prompted the discovery of the ketogenic diet? I think in my conversations, I'm sure you've had a number of conversations with all types of folks. Usually it's some sort of disease with oneself or an injury or a personal friend or family member that had some sort of issue that was involved with the ketogenic diet. Because I think if, you, if we zoom back now, Four years ago, back in 2016, I still remember that if you Google ketones, the first result that would come up is ketoacidosis, which is this acidity in the blood when you're a type 1 diabetic and ketones un, you know, get produced uncontrollably. And it's a very specific, rare edge case in a ketogenic lifestyle. Um, curious for, for your journey, what prompted you to really start diving? I think you nailed it, man. I was, um, I was, I was doing powerlifting and, um, pushing my body to the limits and not considering at all what the food I ate had to do with that inflammation, how, how it played a role. And I, I had to, um, bow out of my last meet. I had a, a meet in March of 2016 and I had a, a torn meniscus that I did back in 2015 that I remember, but I wasn't diagnosed until February of 2016. So I pulled out and um, before 
I started the ketogenic diet, I, I turned to a buddy of mine who was a bodybuilder and a powerlifter and I said, listen, write me a, 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 a meal plan so I can lose some weight. I was at like 240 at the time and we were living in a two-story house because we had just moved to Tampa and we just needed to find something quick and we were renting. And I remember waking up in the morning and I just felt like so much older than I was and I'd have to walk down those stairs every morning and just just felt like an old man. And, and so I had lost all this weight by by just doing the standard you know bodybuilding diet but then i was i was starting to binge and this whole time i had a friend of mine trevor white here in tampa who at the time was in grad school with dr jacob wilson and dr ryan lowry and he was in the lab with them and he he'd, he'd always just be like man you need to try this ketogenic diet he's like he would just show me recipes of things he's like look it's it's not it's not terrible like look at all the cool things that i get to eat and they're low carb and i was just like this is absurd like well how could i not eat carbs and but then of course after i had lost all this weight and i had gotten healthier but my quality of life wasn't great from from the way i was eating it just was an easy switch for me to just from from a quality of life standpoint be like look I, i'm at my goal weight i'm not training for any meats let me just give this a try and since my interesting and to interject here typically a body building diet is I'm curious in your perspective, it typically four to six meals a day, higher carb, higher protein, lower fat. Was that, was that your original diet as you're competing at a high level in, in bodybuilding and power? hundred percent. It was, it was, um, it's interesting because it's all good when the calories are, are high, you know, because you're in this big caloric surplus. So from a hunger standpoint, um, if you're extra hungry, you got all these calories to eat, but the problem with these, uh, this other form of doing things is you, you, um, at the end, you, you cut the fat and the carbs are low. So you really don't have a lot of fuel and whatever fuel you do have, if you're, you're taking it from protein, it's not an efficient fuel source. So I, I remember starting that diet at like 80 grams of fat. And by the end I was at 50 grams of fat with my carbs at the end, like under a hundred. And you know, at that point it's, there was no fuel at all. And so two days of just upping my, my fat a ton and um, dropping my carbs down to 50, I felt amazing. Uh, although I will say that it was the first time I, I had bacon in so many months. And I, I got a pack of bacon and I, I made the whole pack. And then I, I even drank the bacon juice and I had like a bacon aversion for like a month because it was so disgusting <laughs> right at the beginning. But uh, but yeah, like I, that inflammation was like within a few days it was gone. And oh man, I, I can even tell you the, the increase in productivity that I saw in that first year was if I had to quantify it you know, a good 15 to 20% increase in productivity. And I was still a medical device rep. And that was actually the first year that I won the president's club, which was like top 7% in the country. And it was just because of this, this two, 3 PM little lull that people experience. It was gone. I remember specifically being in a parking lot about two hours away from my house at a hospital. And I was, I had some bounce in my step and, and I was like, wow, this is powerful. You know, like I can walk, I can park really far away. In fact, I have to f park far away because I got to get this energy out, you know? Um, and I just, that's what did it. Like that, that motivation, that 
that extra mental, uh, that cognitive performance increase, that that's the difference between making the extra call at the end of the day, between packing it in and, and going home and, and just staying a little bit longer. And, and imagine on a, if you compound that over a whole year, that's what led to, to me, you know, winning that trip. And so I, I credit the, in fact, my first keto speech was at the first KetoCon in 2017. And, and it was all about that whole experience and how it, it changed my life. I mean, how much of that, and then this is something that I've been noodling and thinking about is how much of the benefit of a ketogenic diet, especially with mental clarity and productivity, is due to the ketones themselves versus how much of it is that just people in general have such a bad baseline nutrition with the standard Western diet, with going through fast food drive-throughs that by just being specific to any sort of regimen and diet, you're getting a benefit just by eating more cleanly or just in a more thoughtful way. How would you weigh the two, dif the, the two the differences there? But it sounds like in your specific case, you were already pretty thoughtful on nutrition by eating a fairly clean bodybuilding diet. Yeah, is that yeah it to, was. To, to the see? only problem is that it was a little too restrictive. So you'd get that you'd get that cheat day, which after four months would turn into a cheat weekend. And it was actually Memorial Day weekend because I started on June 12, 2016. I'll never forget it. Um, and, and Memorial Day weekend, you know, that was three days. And like, we just felt like crap, you know? But um, if I had to put weight on it, it's, it's interesting because similar to how people nowadays, it's, it's, they're getting hit from all these different angles between not being thoughtful about food, not eating real food, eating a bunch of packaged junk, the environmental toxins that we're exposed to and the things that we're putting on our armpits, the things that we're using to clean our houses, all these things. And so like, just like on the other side, it's a compounding of, of just negative stimuli that's, that's just really destroying our health i think the combination of removing all the background noise which carbs are I, I one of the first things i said was like carbs are are noise they're they're background noise especially processed carbs and wheat and and grains um you remove that i think that alone one allows you to have a much more stable mood but then you get the that ketones uh, like at the beginning we're very inefficient, you know, like we're, we're just, we're just creating those ketones and we're not really using a ton of those ketones. But me being the person that, that I was like, I remember the guy I mentioned to you, Trevor, I said, send me everything you have. So he sent me like 41 published papers. I ran through all of them. I read, um, uh, Finney and Volick's the art and science of low carb performance. And that continues to be along with the ketogenic Bible, my two favorite, you know, keto tomes, if you will, like, and, you know, just learning about how ketones work. So I, I was actually supplementing with exogenous ketones at the beginning. So I got that, that glimpse into what it really feels like to have ketones. And then I kind of like phased out of them, like maybe a month or two in, and I still kept that same edge. But I guess like, I guess I have to say that cutting the carbs uh, carries a little bit more weight just because people don't really know how crappy they feel until they remove that background noise. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's interesting color and also just interesting in terms of the nuance because one thing that I'm increasingly cautious about is just overhyping any specific diet. And obviously, it sounds like when you're progressing from being a, 
a highly competitive bodybuilder into reducing inflammation and then wanting to be much more productive in your sales rep job, it seemed like you were then therefore optimizing a little bit more for productivity and cognitive performance. But I'm curious in, in terms of physical performance, it still seems like you are still very competitive and keep a high level bar of fitness. In that initial period, did you see a drop in performance? Uh, obviously, a lot of familiar listeners will talk about keto adaptation periods. I'm curious from your perspective, did you face a decrement in performance in that initial period as you're getting more fat adapted? What was your experience like getting through that initial transition phase? Yeah, this is so important. And one of the things I tell people, like you, you mentioned not overhyping a diet, and I totally agree, like you need to have context, you need to have um, realistic expectations and you need to set those expectations. And since I had done my homework, I, I just was happening, I just happened to be in a very busy period of work when I started. Um, we had just that year, we had just had a layoff and I had picked up a whole new half of a territory. Um, and so that first week I didn't work out and it happened also that that week was supposed to be a deload week. And a deload week is, is simply a week where you cut not only the volume, the total volume of, um, reps and sets, but you also cut back on the weight, like 20 to 30%. I'm a big believer in deload weeks. I'm a big believer in scheduling deload weeks and not just going off the way your body feels, because as someone who's very competitive, um, someone in my position will tend to say, I don't need a deload. So I was scheduling these deloads. And so when I started the ketogenic diet, I had a week off and then the second week was a deload week. And so the third week I was back into it. And so aesthetically, I noticed that I was just more wiry looking. I wasn't, I wasn't fluffy. I was, I didn't have that pop to my muscles and I didn't have my veins seem to have disappeared, which I've always had just even when I was a kid, you know, very good vascularity in my arms and stuff. And, um, and so, but for me, I was like, this doesn't matter because this is, this is what I'm doing and I want to give this a good try. And, um, I tell people the same, like if you're a bodybuilder or a power lifter, do this, do this post-competition, do this in the early off-season. You don't want to do this in-season at all because it's very likely that you are going to, you know, experience when you're, you're, you're completely changing the primary fuel that you're using, you have to understand that there's going to be an adaptation. So um, I wasn't training for a powerlifting meet, so I was at that time starting to do more like power building. So I, I would still, I couldn't get away from benching and squatting and deadlifting, but I was doing more uh, volume and lower weight. And so I was doing a little bit more bodybuilding, but literally I remember very clearly that within three months, I, I, I would take progress pics of myself. I barely post them, but I'll, I'll still take them. And I noticed, I'm like, wow, I look the same as I did before I switched to keto. And I'm like, that, that's, that's really cool. Cause I, I wasn't, I wasn't concerned with losing size or anything. I didn't care if that happened, but the fact that I didn't was pretty interesting. And, and I, I ran into Jacob at back in the day we, we had downtown powerhouse. And I said, you know, we had already had him on the podcast and I said, man, I'm doing everything I'm supposed to do to lose muscle. I'm intermittent fasting. Um, I'm eating lower protein than I should. I'm doing endurance stuff because I also did a half marathon because I never in my life would I have thought I would have done a half marathon. But again, it goes back to that, that extra energy. And, and I'm like, and I don't lose muscle. What the heck is going on? And he's like, we're actually right now 
doing some research on on ketones uh, being, you know, kind of a, an anabolic acting as an, you know, as a as a hormone, a, a signaling hormone, kind of like similar to like insulin would do. And and you see that in one of their studies that they did where they had bodybuilders on a deficit and they put one group on a ketogenic diet and they put the other group on a cyclical ketogenic diet. And with two day carb refeeds, uh, the, the cyclical group lost the same amount of total weight, but the, the strict keto group actually lost most of that weight in fat and the cyclical group lost it in muscle. So you lose that, that um, muscle protective aspect of keto when you're, when you're messing around. I, I think that it's, it's possible to do that cyclical thing, but maybe if it's just a meal or just a day, like when you're doing like two whole days, especially if you're not really, really fat adapted as I am, then you start to lose that, that benefit of ketones protecting muscle tissue. Yep. Yeah. I was going to say that anabolic is one way to think about it, but you know, you, or you could, one could think about it as anti-catabolic, anti-catabolic yeah. which is, it makes sense from an evolutionary perspective where if one is in ketosis, you would want to be preserving lean muscle tissue over adipose tissue, which makes sense from an evolutionary perspective. So I think it sounds like you either were fortuitous in terms of timing your keto adaptation during a deload phase, or you were, you know, happened to match up quite nicely, but it sounds like in retrospect, it was probably the right way to implement a ketogenic diet, right? So again, I think what you said was probably best practice. Don't change your nutrition in the middle of the season. That's like changing a coach or changing technique for like your tennis swing in the middle of you know the US Open. You, you just don't do that. And I think you're absolutely right that when people change their technique or change your nutrition in the middle, uh, in, in, a tr- in, in the competition block, like you shouldn't expect to be the same athlete you were before and after. Um, so I'm curious, as you have gotten back in, and you know, just if you look at you know Danny's Instagram, still quite a fit guy, big. Do you start experimenting introducing carbs back into play? And I think this is where it gets interesting from a longevity health span perspective versus performance. And obviously, in in some, in some periods of life, some people would rather trade off getting that extra one two percent performance, potentially damaging their health and their long-term health span, you know, maybe increase, you know, impacting the insulin resistance, et cetera. How do you think about it now in terms of now being a fat adapted keto athlete, you know, we use the term athlete. um, Do you think about reintroducing carbs for strategic uh, training blocks, strategic uh, competitions? or do you just try to be as keto carnivore as long as possible? You know, the, the longevity thing is, is always in my mind, you know, because um, I tend to eat, t- you know, pretty high protein all the time. And, you know, we, we know that the, the mTOR response that you're going to get from a high protein diet is never going to, re- it's never going to compare to like the insulin response that you get and the mTOR response from a high carb diet, you know, because mm-hmm. these are just short-lived transient um, increases in mTOR that are probably helpful with muscle growth as well. So I always do think about that, but I love this idea of 
uh, variation, you know, like like going from periods of anabolism to catabolism, going from periods of, you know, lower protein and 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 especially in the winter, you know, as our gut microbiomes change throughout the year, you know, I'm big into circadian biology. I don't pretend to know a lot about it, but I do know that we need to take into consideration one, our daily circadian biology, our monthly, our just the, the, the cycles of the moon, the year, and you know, the gut microbiome changes that happen in times like the, the spring and fall where we can handle more carbs. And, and you know, if we're looking at it from an ancestral standpoint, and you know, we live in an area where there's abundance of fruit and even starches and some vegetables um, and some starchier vegetables in the summer, then I, I do tend to enjoy those. But I, I'll tell you the first two years of, of keto, I really only did one year of, of, of a ketogenic diet because I, I, I found out about carnivore in August of 2017. And I said, wait, I don't have to eat the vegetables. <laughs> and I was like, well, maybe I don't have to eat them and I could still feel good. And I actually, I actually experienced an increase because at the time I, I've, I've also competed in indoor rowing and I, I got my fastest time in the 500 meter. I broke, flo- I, I had the Florida records in the 500, the 100, the three, uh, the, the 300, um, wait, what was it? The, the minute for distance. And, and that was when I switched to carnivore. But interesting. What was your 500 meter time? I, that was actually kind of funny. I had a personal challenge at the end of last year to do uh, a 500 meter erg challenge. I'm curious, what, what were your times? Well, when I when I hit 119.9, I texted Dr. Baker because Dr. Sean Baker was, you know, he had given me a lot of a lot of uh, advice. And and I told him that I hit 119.9 and he said, not, nah, you know, sub 120 is the big boys club like you're 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 in the. The big boys club regardless the guys at 213 or 113 but i mean i was just blown away because i my previous best time was a 124 so i hit a 119.9 and but like i i didn't i didn't i didn't think i needed carbs and you know it's the dunning kruger effect the the minute that i learned about ketosis you know i was so excited about it and i and at first i i thought i knew everything i needed to know and the more i learned the more i realized oh my gosh i thought that was that i thought i i had that figured out and that's totally not true and and so looking at it now i i I just i'm consistently trying to unlearn and relearn but um Two years into it, I started playing around in the summer of 2018. It's been a very gradual process for me where I just started doing post-workout carb meals. And it was only 50 grams of carbs in in like the form of sweet potatoes. And I found that that really didn't work out well at all because I, I would just, those were most of the carbs that I ate in the day. And then the rest of the day I had cravings. But then fast forward to January of 2019, I did this carnivore slash paleo experiment where I would eat mostly carnivore. And then on three non-consecutive days of the week, I would eat like a paleo 50 grams of carbs a day. And what I noticed was that at the first week or so, my blood sugar was all over the place. And, and, and with all the testing that I've done, I was, I was really concerned that I couldn't make heads or tails out of, I, I couldn't predict anything. I couldn't really see what was happening. Then within a week though, of, of doing that, cause I did it for a whole month. Um, I found that my, not only was my fasted baseline, uh, blood sugar lower, but overall my blood sugar was lower. And I've continued to see that, um, as time has gone on where, you know, they talk about physical 
physiological insulin resistance. I'm not a fan of the term. I, I like Dr. Bickman's term. He likes to call it um, glucose intolerance. And, you know, it's kind of that same thing where we hear about women who've been on a low carb diet for years and they get pregnant and they take the glucose tests and they fail because their body doesn't know what to do with the, the glucose. Nowadays, what I what I find now is um, I'm really interested in stress management and um, considering I, I, this summer I was doing carb ups every week actually at body weight in grams of carbs. So I was eating like 225 grams of carbs. Um, and you, you mentioned that balancing longevity and the other stuff. What I found was, yeah, I did get that whatever five to 10% increase in performance in the workout. But since I did these carb ups every single week with no regard to how I felt or anything else other than the fact that it was once a week and it was on my highest volume lifting day, I was creeping up and my left shoulder started to bug me a little bit more and by the end of the 12 weeks i was like okay i'm done and i didn't carb up from august until uh late january this year and this year i've had two carb ups and they've both been um intuitive and they've both been mainly focusing on the the band-aid that carbs provide in modulating serotonin and um, cortisol because i get that insulin spike sometimes i'll feel cracked out from being a carnivore too 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 long and you know i'll start waking up at three in the morning um with no no alarm and and i feel awake and everything but i feel cracked out and and i just find that that carbohydrates are just a great way if you do it strategically and you're smart um a great way to to bring down cortisol and um and just overall bring me into a lower stressed environment and then also provide me with energy um for these more glycolytic workouts where before you know and what I've always heard is, oh, well, you know, you need carbs to add muscle or you need carbs to really fill out. That's not exactly true. I just I look at it from a standpoint of the immediate performance increase pre-workout, which would be as little as 20 to 30 grams. So you don't even need that many. And you're not going to catch me eating gummy bears or any crap like that. You know, you're going to catch me eating real food. Um, but then the other thing is the cortisol, the, the, the stress part. You actually predicted where I wanted to take that. I think it's very interesting that you bring up cortisol. And that's something that I think is under thought about when people are applying a lot of hermetic stress with a ketogenic diet plus fasting plus heavy workouts right like and the coffees yeah it's fasting coffee all of it's it it's like if you are overly primed towards adaptation you can actually cross some threshold where <laughs> yeah. you're actually just stressing out your body right like some stress is good but too much stress all at the same time is actually just called damaging or stressing out your body so i'm actually i would love to just see an overall cortisol oh my gosh monitor where yes. you can just track your stress against all these different interventions. And I think it's actually pretty interesting where you've actually noticed and are actually ad adapting your protocol to consider cortisol as something to control for. And I think that's probably something that I would, I hope that more people in our community in, in this area think more about where it's just not controlling insulin glucose, where I think these things, these things are fairly modulatable, but like cortisol, because that's ultimately ends up being one of the key drivers of all the things that you don't want from a stress response. So it's interesting to hear that you've kind of intuitively found or discovered or applying strategic carb loads to make sure you control your cortisol. Anything else that you've noticed in your experimentation 
around cortisol itself. Because I think, again, like cortisol can be triggered from emotional stress, work stress, relationship stress. Obviously, physical and diet can drive cortisol as well. It just seems that in this modern age, everyone's overly anxious. And I'm just wondering, is there just an overabundance of cortisol in everyone's system right now? Oh, man, this is such a, a topic that's near and dear to my heart because I've actually done... Uh, I just recently did a presentation on this in January uh, because, you know, when, when we talk about for years, the, the question has been, can you build muscle on a ketogenic diet? And, and, you know, and then what happens? People say, yeah, you can look at Danny Vega. And I'm like, well, that's not helpful. <laughs> you know, how, how, first of all, I built a lot of this muscle before keto, but like, what are we, what are we missing here? What are the considerations? And for me, cortisol is, is huge because you know, you see people, um, there's so much information, so many inputs, and you're like, okay, OMAD, fasting, you know, coffee, and, and you know, even nootropics. But I, I'm not going to say nootropics play a role, but I'm just saying like, you know, taking stimulants, for example, and then, you know, eating low carb. And then a lot of the times you're not even eating enough. And so, like you said, it gets, it gets to a point where it's, you're not going to build muscle. You're not going to burn fat. You're going to lose motivation. And, um, and, and cortisol, in my opinion, and, and just from what I've seen, I love to read, you know, the, the opinions and even the published opinions of people who disagree with the ketogenic diet, because it's very enlightening when you talk about even fat adaptation and how you can use fat at a higher percentage of your VO2 max. But then when you take into consideration that if you're training in that glycolytic pathway for too long, eventually you're not going to be able to keep up with your energy needs from fat. It's not going to be able to keep up. And so you risk lean tissue, cortisol starts going up. And, and I talk a lot about how, you know, ideally we'd like to have cortisol kind of high in the morning. And, and that's why the, the coffee in the morning works so well with, with so many people. They don't eat breakfast and then they're productive. But during the day, cortisol needs to come down. And, and at lunchtime, you know, if it's, if it, it could just be a transition into a ketogenic diet where you're adding a little bit of carbs at lunch and then you're adding a little bit more carbs at dinner just so you can get those cortisol um, rhythms to get to where they need to be, where it's highest in the morning, lowest at night, so you get that restorative sleep. So um, beyond the cortisol thing, I mean, I've learned so much. I I just did this weekend a carb up and um, I did... Uh, I had 260 grams of carbs because at the end of the night, I was supposed to have 225 grams. And at the end of the night, I was watching this amazing documentary. Oh, it's not a documentary. It's a, it's a historical uh, miniseries called Into the West. And it's all about like the eventual decline and, and the, the complete destruction of, of the Native American culture. And as the westward expansion went on and, and Dean, my, my youngest, was watching it with me. And so I took a banana and I melted some chocolate, some uh, 92% chocolate and some Maranatha peanut butter. And I drizzled it on there with, and I put it in the freezer. And then I put a little bit of honey on top and we ate that. And I woke up the next morning, my blood sugar was kind of elevated. It was like 96, but my ketones were still, uh, well, actually, no, my ketones were 0.2. But then I, all I did was add some fat to my coffee and, and I did have some exogenous ketones later on. And later on, there's, I've seen this several times where there's this like 
crazy response where when I pull the, the carbs back out, my, my blood ketones were 3.9, uh, you know, and, and I was like, wait a second, I just had 260 grams of carbs last night. So I've just learned so much. And that's why, you know, lately since August, I've been much more intuitive and not tracking, but, but the tracking has allowed me to learn so much about my body. And I try to just share that with people because I realize that not everyone is like me, but I do like them to just kind of be aware that this is a possibility. Like if, if you are a high performance person, if you are a competitive person cortisol especially you want to you want to keep that in mind and you 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 don't want to we just my wife and I were just talking about like people forcing OMAD you know OMAD is great to me if it just happens but if you're trying to force an OMAD you know every single day and you're just trying to force it because you think that's the best thing for you again it gets back into that uh, the stress turns into a negative stress Yep, I think it's well said, and especially given that cortisol shares precursors with sex hormones, right? Sort of men, testosterone. If you're constantly triggering cortisol release, oftentimes that's correlated with lower testosterone, which is obviously important for male performance and all of that. Um, so, and I think one observation that, again, I think is less well understood is that once you get so metabolically flexible you can have carbs and still be in ketosis quite quickly, right? Because I imagine in your case, you are quite metabolically flexible. Uh, you've been fairly low carb. You have a carb obsession of 200 grams of carbs. Typically, that's, that's a decent slug of carbs, but you have a lot of muscle. Those are essentially <laughs> yeah. glucose Calorie sinks. absorbers. Your muscles <laughs> absorb all that glucose. Yeah, that you, you, you restore all your glycogen, and then the next morning, as you have more of a lower carbohydrate intake, your ketones are back up. And I think that's, that, that's something that I think people who just get into the ketogenic diet fail to realize the nuance of. And I think that's where I think experience in conversations like this can help just share a little bit of experience where it's just yeah. not like some religion, where it's like, okay, if you eat <laughs> 51 grams of carbs, you yeah. are... You're terrible, right? And I think that's one of the messages I want to help popularize or get people more comfortable with that. Even the 50 gram rule is a, really a rule of thumb, right? Like all these numbers are pretty bespoke to your genetic baseline, your body weight, what your goals are, what your activity load is, right? If you're doing more exercise, you can have a little bit more carbohydrate and still be in ketosis. And I think that having these conversations with, with people that actually track helps give people just more of a actual understanding versus these back of the envelope rule of thumbs, right? Like it's pretty arbitrary to be like less than 20 grams, less than 50 grams. Like those are just nice round numbers that humans really like uh, tens, right? But that's just like a random number that kind of works for most people, which again is really good for the beginner because people need a easy way to enter a new lifestyle but hopefully, as the world changes around us and people get more sophisticated and serious about the nutrition, people can start applying the actual science and physiology rather than just sticking to, you know, some arbitrary numbers that some YouTuber or some someone writes. In Absolutely, the and you know, one of the one of my good friends um, who's done actual research on this is uh, Dr. Jordan Joy, fantastic human being. Um, did a lot of research in his uh, PhD on 
you know, carb limits, you know, what are, what are the, how do we adjust this 50 grams of carbs that were probably, you know, written for, you know, epileptic patients or anybody with, you know, neurological conditions or, or cancers or, you know, metabolic diseases. How do we, how do we adjust that for the high performers who one carry a lot of muscle two are not metabolically damaged um, and three have a high activity level like it's obvious that protein needs are going to be higher and you know carbohydrate intake is going to be you're going to have more flexibility you may do just fine because there's genetics as well because for example uh, our good friend Anthony J he's a epigeneticist at the Mayo Clinic and he read my DNA and my friend Robert's DNA who uh, Keto Savage and he and I have some key differences. For example, I am very fast twitch dominant and I have um, a propensity to cramp more. There's some of the snips that I have. And so it makes sense that I would do better with some carbs. And then he can just literally the guy ran a, a marathon last year with no prep in the middle of bulking season where he's walking around at 170 usually. And he was 190 pounds. And the only thing he could complain about was that his feet hurt, you know, like that's not possible for me, <laughs> you know, so there, there are genetic concerns. And like, I, I love what you said about not being dogmatic because, you know, I think it's very dangerous for me with my platform to start telling people this is how you should do things because then that's why my wife doesn't share what she eats because she knows that a lot of women are going to just try to eat what she eats and not have any type of internal thought on you know what's best for me and it's just like what is so and so doing so i can look like them yeah yeah i think that's well said and i think thoughtful around again understanding the principles and then the applications for your instance of of human, right? And that there's a lot of variation with across the, the broad spectrum of humanity. I want to broaden the scope of the conversation a little bit. I know that in a lot of your previous conversations and other podcasts, you've really also talked a lot about philosophy, stoicism, libertarianism. And I also want to also open up the scope to raising young kids, you know, and, 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 and applying some of your nutrition, fitness, philosophical approach in, in how to raise uh, a, a young child in this modern age. I don't have children um, yet, but I've started having conversations with friends who have young children. And it's kind of this interesting, I guess, thought experiment for me and, and, and for you. You're actually you know, in the midst of raising you know, two young boys. It's definitely um, an experiment. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, I, w- I want to just broaden out in terms of philosophy and also you know, how does one raise children, young men, young women in this day and age in terms of nutrition, but also philosophy, lifestyle, work ethic, all of that. Man, you just hit like a a really deep nerve. I really love this stuff so much. Um, I'll give you an example. So, you know, your children, you can't expect your child to be a free thinker, um, to, to, you know, have all the qualities that you would want for them, for them to live the happiest life that they can live if you raise them in a way that's that's completely incongruent with that. So, for example, one of the first things that children should learn about is property rights, in my opinion, in my opinion, because, you know, the first piece of property that you need to talk about is your body and yourself. You know, I, you know, I own my body and no one has a claim over my body but myself. 
and then I have property and you know, this is my property. And so how do you raise a, a child to really understand that? Well, our two rules, our only two rules in our house are um, do not encroach on the property or person of another, uh, on, on the property or person of someone. And so that, that takes care of everything from stealing to hitting to just every type of, you know, assault, battery, all those things, um, screaming in my ears, you know, that breaks rule number one. And then number two is do everything that you've agreed to do. And, um, and then going even more granular on like the, the, the child raising side is how do you raise a child who learns how to do things and it's internally motivated and it's not because I said so. So for example, like if, if my child owns their body, then no, you don't have to hug grandma and grandpa if you don't want to, I'm not going to make you. And also if you don't want to share your property, I'm not going to make you share. And this was one that was really interesting for us because people were like, well, how is he going to share? And I just noticed so many things, they start early on and then they continue in school. You got me in my soapbox now. <laughs> um, so like, so, so what happens in the, in the playground when uh, Jimmy doesn't want to give you his toy um, and you've been told that you deserve to play with Jimmy's toy? Um, the first thing you do is you find an authority figure and you say, mommy, Jimmy's not sharing his toy. And, you know, if that's if Jimmy's my son, I'm going to say, listen, if he doesn't want to share his toy, then he doesn't have to. It's his toy. But what I find is that our children are so much more generous. They're they're so much more giving because they don't they're not afraid that an authority figure is going to come take take their thing away. And so I just, I've found that, you know, and you talked about libertarianism, like that's, we are 100% libertarian. And, you know, it's hilarious because, you know, being that I, I studied political science undergrad, and now I'm a complete political atheist. Um, I just find that very ironic and funny. It didn't take many elections for me. It just took two. Uh, we were Ron Paul supporters. We were you know, pounding pavement, knocking on doors and, and just two, two election cycles, we were like, okay, this is not how we're going to change the world. So we're not even going <laughs> to, we're not going to dedicate any of our time to this. What can we, how can we change the world? Well, of course we start with ourselves being the best version of ourselves, but with our children, we want to teach them how to be independent, how to be, um, have a heart of service, how to be emotionally intelligent, how to manage their money. And we're not concerned at the same time with, what society tells us about where they should be at what age, you know, these arbitrary benchmarks of like, you need to be reading this by this age and you need to do, it's all rote memorization. And it's no surprise that children go through education and the whole education system. And, you know, the only thing that they've, the only thought they've put into what they actually want to do with their lives is when they talk to a counselor who's asking them what they want their major to be when they go to the, when they go to college. And, you know, to me, my child, my, my goal is to, is to spend as much time in their sweet spot, which changes either by the month or by a couple of months. So 80% of the time we're spending our time with them doing those things. And the other 20% we're filling in with the things that we, we think, you know, this is important for them to know. So right now, Desmond's sweet spot is Rubik's cubes, 
Uh, he's obsessed with Rubik's cubes and he has all different types. Um, beatboxing. He's like, he's ridiculously good at beatboxing <laughs> and, and just like everything else. Like he, we're into, we're in Egypt right now. We're doing some history, uh, with Egypt and we're doing all types of stuff. Like, um, history is a big thing for us. We're going to watch that, that Harriet Tubman movie. Uh, we just got to check. We always got to check the parents guide um, before we put movies on for them and make sure that there's nothing too crazy. I don't mind reality. Like, you know, if they're talking about death or they're talking about things like that, but there's certain things that, that I want to make sure that even though I don't, I want to, I want my child to see more of the world. You know, that's why we homeschool because we want them to see more of the world and we want them to see the whole picture. We want them to see the, not only the revisionist history, but like, you know, the full picture, how every side sees it. Um, and so, yeah, that's basically what we do with them. Um, you know, stoicism has a big part in it as well, which, which my kids are very aware. I have, you know, Memento Mori tattooed on my left arm and I got a Morfati tattooed on my right arm and, no, but um, absolutely, I, I've I've actually told my son. Um, he he throughout the years has had questions, and thankfully, because of this relationship that we have, because they feel grounded in this relationship with us, they can they can ask difficult questions to us. So we've had the sex talk already, and well, then the sex talk turned into the with my with my oldest because you know already kids his age when he was eight were talking about sex, and I'm like. You kids don't know what sex is. You kids don't even know. Like they, they, they didn't even. And so I had to like, I was like, you know what? Let's tell them the whole thing. And that led to rape and consent because we have to talk about, you know, consent, consensual sex. And we need to talk about how we view sex. And, and, but now I, I told him last week, I said, buddy, and I'm really excited for this man, because my son has questions that are just like, if you want to have, if you really want to stimulate your mind jeff like have some kids because i'm telling you like these kids like it's um, unbelievable the things that they think of and you see their mind at work and i'm like listen i know you got some questions and i'm ready let's 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 start asking questions and let's start having conversations so of course marcus aurelius is going to be there epictetus you know seneca um and then some of the modern uh stoics uh i, I also want to get them we we have this uh book series called the tuttle twins which is um basically taking some of the my favorite economics books and and turning them into children's books so we have the road to serfdom in children like a children book we have uh the creature from jekyll island so my kids know about monetary policy in a little bit you know and a little bit about you know um you know the just the, the different ways that you know people can steal from you <laughs> and um and and so we have children's books but we also have you know essays like there's a great site called mises.org it's named after ludwig von mises uh one of the one of my two favorite austrian economists uh, economists and so this is the life that we're living and i'm like i can't believe we're doing this i mean it, this is amazing i think anybody could do it you just have to you have to realize that when I was a medical device rep and I was making a quarter million a year, everybody was like, of course you can homeschool. Look at, you know, you're making good money. But like now I'm probably making a third of that, you know, and I still choose this because to me, um, you know, we don't have cable. We, the only real things we spend money on is good food and travel. And, um, and I choose to live this lifestyle because I'm connected with my family. I'm fulfilled. 
And um, now I'm just rambling here, but yeah, that that's that's basically I don't know anything in particular that you want to get deeper on. I mean, I'm just I want to just reflect on the authenticity because I think when we talk about the industrialized food system and how people have to really be thoughtful about their personalized nutrition, uh, I think people understand that. I think there's a much broader awareness that yes, we should be thinking about macros, the specific micronutrients, avoiding processed foods. But I think when people think about education, especially of children, the school systems today are essentially industrialized commodity education. And I think it's interesting for you that you've realized that and are really resolving that and doing that by homeschooling, which I think is very, very interesting. Where I think most people will think about nutrition and do something about that. But even that, that's a subset of just broader society. And I think there's a much smaller subsegment for what's taking that principle of building out and really owning their lifestyle in such a deep way. So I, I, I commend you on that. I mean, it sounds like it's really cool that you've really built a, a system and, and framework and a, and a lifestyle that just works. Um, I'm curious from a, kind of, there's a way that you talked about like the two kind of primary rules of the household. I, it, it just sounds very axiomatic or physics-like where a lot of rigorous formal systems, you start with very few assumptions, very few rules, and then you build up a lot more complicated structures on top of that. And it sounds like you've done that well and you're starting to see the complexity or the, the evolution of how these simple rules have created all these questions, these, these thought patterns that you wouldn't have predicted from, from, from day one. I'm curious when you look at your children, how you see some of your friends' children's are, what are some of those biggest, biggest differences? Do you feel like people that have their kids go through more of the standard system, just a little bit more cowed, a little bit more docile, a little bit more in the system? I mean, obviously, I grew up in a very traditional, you know, went to school, all that stuff, public school, um, kind of figured it out at some point in our lives. Because um, I think you just can't constrain human creativity. But I'm curious, as you do that very, very early, does that unlock a level of creativity, a level of self-confidence, a level of self-discipline that you see in your children that you see maybe lacking in the average American child? So um, that's a great question. Like, it's, it's interesting when you start thinking about other people because kids live in a society. They don't live only at home. And um, that's really important. So... One of the things that I'll find, and maybe when they were younger, it was a little bit more, it would affect me more, but you tend to, um, when you're around people who parent differently than you, you tend to kind of feel bad and you tend to, you know, you, you feel like, oh, wait, let me, let me step in more than I usually would because this person doesn't understand and, 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 you know, I, I I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna be more like them. And, you know, I stopped doing that when they were, when Desmond was like three or four, I just got to the point where, you know, people were, were scolding their kids for climbing up the, 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 uh, slide. And, and, you know, my son was climbing up the slide and, and, you know, they were like, well, well, so-and-so's doing it. Why can't I do it? You know? And then they look at me and I'm just like, in my mind, I'm like, dude, you need to lighten up, get out of their way, you know, but I don't say anything. Um, but what I find is that like, I have a group of friends here locally, um, Ben Pekulski, my business partner, one of my best friends, um, other friends of ours who who 
there are definitely like-minded people that 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 truly believe that number one we should live in in mutual respect with our children we, it's our job to protect them and to teach them but then at the same time we're we're not in we're a non-authoritarian form of parenting and you know that gets tricky with things like well how are you going to punish them well I, I don't view it as a punishment because in life no one punishes me i just have natural consequences and you know one of the easiest natural consequences is like if you don't follow the rules you're not in good standing with this family and so like if you expect me to make you something to eat or like a snack or something or or you you want me to do something extra for you um you know i'm just not going to do it because you're not you're not holding your end of the deal and so like it's very like you said like i like that you said it was kind of like um like like physics it's, it's also very contractual you know like it's it's like this is a clearly stated um agreement between both of us and you're breaking your end of the agreement and there's consequences for that but as far as the way they think oh my gosh i mean one of the things that's really hard as a young parent who's has this lifestyle is that when they're really little and their brains aren't developed that much you tend to question yourself a lot more especially when people question you and so in the back of your head even if you're the biggest believer in in the principles that you're trying to live out you're going to be like am i am i screwing my kid up am i spoiling my kid you know but then you start to get little confirmation here and there like in, when he's like when he turned 5 5 was just so magical man it was just it was just so many things like he started to his brain started to like really understand a lot more and you know we we we're also again big on you know the the stages of development we understand that like at certain ages it doesn't matter what you do as a parent it's age appropriate behavior and you know we we've relied on you know kind of a a scientific standpoint if you will because like you know people like dr laura markham ahaparenting.com i mean that website we were on there all the time you know dr shefali um amazing person she wrote the awakened family and and the the common denominator between all of these great authors and people who are who are uh advocating for you know peaceful parenting non-violent parenting and all these things is that you start to notice that it's not about controlling behavior at all it's about controlling yourself. <laughs> it's always, and then you feel like a big kid because you're like, you realize that you're just having an adult temper tantrum. Um, and, you know, how do you problem solve? I'm just, right now I'm reading uh, Jocko's new book on leadership. And, and one of the, the last sections is talking about how, you know, you can't just tell your team because I said so. It's just the same way you, you can't tell your kids because I said so. Like if I tell my child, put on your your helmet when you ride your skateboard because I said so what's to stop him from taking the helmet off when I'm not around because it's cumbersome and it's not cool but what if I say hey let's um let's see like why helmets are important and let's look at like let's just look at some of the injuries that could happen if you if you don't wear a helmet you know all of these things to me it takes more effort it's not it's 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 less convenient it's inconvenient to stop and to do these things but guess what it sticks and and i start to see that my especially my oldest has a, a much more a position of leadership he's kind of like because he's so confident and because he has always kind of 
I mean, think about it. You're the only one who eats keto. Like you, you show up to school or to the, your homeschool co-op and you got like nuts and, and, you know, like, you know, meat and vegetables and fruit and your friends have cake and, you know, jelly beans and stuff. And, and right off the bat, you're going to be different. And, and so he's confident in his positions. And because of that, I see him as a leader. Now, the only thing I have to temper is his tendency that I've noticed, um, lately is his tendency is a little bit to be a little preachy, like to be like, you know, Yep. Don't be judgmental. I was going to ask about that. Right. And it sounds like you're the way you talk about it is not judgmental at all. I think it's about very libertarian, which is that you are figuring out and implementing what you believe and you're not harming or encroaching on other people's rights. And hopefully by living a well-lived life, you inspire others potentially to join and adopt their own lifestyle. And it sounds like that's the, very much the way you, you talk about it, but I can imagine you take it to one step further. It's like, wow, now you're being judgmental or yeah, exactly. Preachy. Yeah. I can't, I, I don't want that. We gotta, we gotta nip that in the bud. And so like, first of all, why are you talking about nutrition with these kids? Like, did they ask about nutrition? You know, like if you, I always tell my kids, you know, the first rule of communication is no one's going to listen to information that they didn't ask for. You will only receive information that you asked for. So if someone asks you how, why do you eat that? And he can say, man, I feel awesome. I don't have cravings. You know, my energy levels are good. I don't feel like, like I need Snickers. You know, I don't even eat candy on Halloween. Like I'll have, I'll pick a few candies and I'll sell the rest of my dad. Like, you know, the things that they do that. That, that is what I tell him. But, you know, sometimes I, I understand because like he they, they go to Lifetime, the, the gym and Lifetime has a homeschool program now. So we have them in that so they can if they have homework, they can do it there. But they had a nutrition class and that was a disaster because, <laughs> yeah. you know, you got the teacher is like everybody, you know, um, can somebody name an example of a healthy grain? And then my he was eight years old at the time. He's like he raises his hand and Desmond's like, there's no such thing as a healthy grain. And I'm like, whoa, 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 buddy. Cuck, ease it back. You know, like, you know, like, cause he's, he's like, he hears us and, um, and he hears how we talk. And I, I, I tell them, look, you can defend your position and you can be proud of the way you eat and you can share about that, but just make sure that people understand that you're not judging them. And like you said, Jeff, like it's not, there are people who are doing amazingly well by just eating real food. If we can just get more people to eat real food, even if it's meat and potatoes and some sweet potatoes and vegetables and fruits and eat a ton of fruit, like that would, that alone would take us way further than we are. Speaking about going back to the food, I mean, one of the popular conversation topics has been around carnivore diet. It sounds like you've been one of the earlier adopters having experimented with the carnivore over the last couple of years. Uh, I know you talk about being nose to tail. Any additional thoughts there where, you know, you mentioned Sean Baker, who has also been on the program. He talks about not necessarily having to be nose to tail. He's just eats ribeyes. Um, obviously, you've incorporated a lot more organ meats. Any interesting tidbits, tips, best practices, given your experimentation with carnivore, especially nose to tail carnivore, that are worth mentioning and adding nuance to? Well, first of all, I, I think um, Dr. Baker is amazing. Like um, just his presence in general is something we really need. Like like Ted Naiman says, he's the anti, you know, he's the, the antidote to veganism. Like, you know, you need you need a vocal person. You need someone who's um, 
Uh, yeah, he's trolling vegans on purpose. I think if you actually talk to him in private, he, he knows he's being a troll. Yeah, and in private, like, he is the nicest person ever. And if you ask him for help, he'll, but like, you know, he's taking the darts every single day. He's taking arrows in the back, you know? So, um, and he wants, like, I know Dr. Baker very well. We've, we've been friends for years now. And like, he wants people to eat more meat period. He wants the barriers to eating meat down and he wants people comfortable with eating meat. And so if you start telling people that you got to eat organs and all this stuff that could complicate things and, and it can get, it can lower the chance of, of getting more people to, to try, you know, just eating more meat and, and feeling better. So that's where he's coming from. But I will say that, you know, as a podcaster and as someone who's always going to conferences, like it, it, sometimes I, 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 try to listen to every opinion and you can imagine how confusing that can be sometimes. And, you know, I was kind of, you know, not questioning carnivore because I, I f truly felt amazing, but what really reignited my, my passion for, for this type of diet where it's usually my baseline is just eating meat is when, when Paul Saladino and I became friends and when he started like, um, talking about this nose to tail stuff and like, I was like, man, this makes so much sense. And, and, and I, I, I felt better. And so like, I always talk about like acceptable versus optimal. If you're someone in my position, you don't want to just be acceptable because you know, you have greater energy needs. You know, that we live in a society that, that, you know, kind of so many different ways that we can deplete, you know, minerals and vitamins and, and so many things working against us. Why wouldn't I want to, you know, eat organs and why wouldn't I want to, um, get all the benefits from eating nose to tail? Like it's very clear. Like I can, I can go to the store and get glucosamine and chondroitin for my, for my joints. Cause my joints hurt and I'm getting like a high heat, you know, uh, cooked, you know, process that, that, that's going to put him onto, into this little pill and it's going to charge me hundreds and hundreds of times more than it would, than I would, than it would cost me to make bone broth you know, and eat, and eat meat on the bone and get all this other stuff, you know? So, um, I do love the nose to tail approach. Like today, just today I had for lunch, I had organ meat burgers mixed with ground bison that I have like liver, kidney, heart, um, and then ground beef and ground bison. And, um, I, I have bone broth. I had bone broth for lunch. And so I just think that if, if you can, find a way to incorporate a little bit of organs, whether, whether it starts with a supplement, um, like a, like desiccated organs, or you, even my kids love my organ meat burgers. Like I make organ meat burgers and they'll, they'll, they'll crush it, you know? And I, I do put like either pork belly or, um, bacon into the grind, which amazingly just hides the liver taste but once you it, you truly do acquire a taste once you acquire that taste my wife i just shared something from facebook from like six seven years ago when we first started eating organs and she's like she said something like it's looking at me and it's telling me it doesn't want to be eaten you know and it smells like it doesn't want to be eaten but now my wife even loves liver and and you know even my son he had you know the some skin issues on his on his elbows and we had him on steroids man as soon as we started adding liver that was gone and you know now if he has an issue if my if either of my kids have issues they know how to be proactive like desmond started getting something another uh thing on one of his elbows and he just cracked open a a can of cod livers and was eating cod livers and within two days of eating cod livers i even posted it his his elbow was clearing up so 
I see the power of nose to tail. I appreciate and respect what our inheritance is from our ancestors and you know what we've um however you want to put it evolved adapted whatever we've we've uh what's been left to us in our biology and i just i think that it's beautiful because it's so simple and and it's actually it's actually not expensive you know you can you start adding organs and you mix that in with regular meat, you got a loss leader because you got, you know, you got a really, even if you're buying grass fed, organs are cheaper. And so, um, I don't know, there's just, there's just so many benefits to eating nose to tail and I've noticed them. And, um, I, I just, I encourage people to try it. That's, that's really, but you can, you can do fine with just eating ribeyes and ground beef and stuff. I just, I just think this is, this is optimal. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I think about it in two ways. If you observe wild animals, look at polar bears or wolves when they hunt, they go for organ meats first. They almost leave the muscle tissue for the carrion, which is interesting, again, from a, potentially from a nutrient density perspective. And also just these are wild animals and they're up, you know, they are somehow natural selection has optimized them to eat organ meats, which I think is interesting. And then the second reflection is that I was just actually, uh, I don't know if there's a Twitter handle called Keto Aurelius. He sent me some of his beef liver chips, which I think are- Oh are, yeah, that guy has yeah. great content. Uh, but he, he's also, I think, launching a beef liver uh, product. And I just had some, I was just snacking on this earlier today. I think it's interesting that a lot of people like gag on organ meats. And that's something that I've been kind of puzzling about. Okay, wild animals, seem to go towards organ meats. For some reason or another, modern, the modern human palate seems to shy away from organ meats, but it seems that like if you get used to it, it is actually quite delicious, quite palatable. What do you, what do you make of that? Do you think that it's because the modern processed diet has made any, I guess, polarizing taste just so off base that it's really messed up our palate? Uh, we're just so used to fatty, sugary, uh, taste that that's the only thing that is palatable to us now. Um, I think it's pretty interesting if you go back to keep it simple that things that should generally that we are drawn towards, you know, might be a decent algorithm. I'm still kind of puzzling around why organ meats seem to be so visceral to many of us, but for I guess for, for folks who have just been adapted to it or just have eaten it growing up, and a lot of East Asian foods have a lot of organ meats. I was just we had some of our uh, team members from Belarus fly in and they grew up eating like ground kidney, ground liver, ground pork lungs, right? And it's always been a part of cuisine. I'm just wondering why this seems so unappetizing to modern folks from the West. It's, it's kind of a puzzling, interesting question to me. Man, I think, I think that, um, and, and I'm grateful, if I'm right, I'm extremely grateful that we have not lost our natural desire to eat organs. I think, like you said, it's just... You can't compete with, you know, Cool Ranch, uh, Cool Whip Doritos. It's like flavor punch, boom, ba, boom. You know, like even the freaking ads are like, you know, the colors, the the the, the food scientists. They're obviously brilliant, um, but give give organs. Watch any single baby or young child that you give organs to, and they will eat it up. And to me. That's really that's really telling. Like my my niece Eva, she just turned three. When when she was one and two, 
we were giving her the organ meat burgers. She was eating it up. My boys, my my young boys were eating, you know, raw liver with the, the, the you know, the hemoglobin just going down or the myoglobin just going down their, their you know, chins, you know, and they, they didn't really care. But just like we adapt to... Um, to to eating a higher carb diet i think our palates are like you know why the heck would i want to eat these organs when i got this nicely cut you know muscle meat that that can just be churned out and i can get pounds and pounds of it and then i can get this burger and put it on you know on a bun and then add you know high fructose corn syrup ketchup and you know canola oil mayo and you know <laughs> all this other stuff and and it tastes freaking delicious and 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 it's the same thing with the way we eat where we're eating like we're eating for winter at all times there's this guy that wrote a book called don't eat for winter that's uh fantastic and he's not really a keto guy but he just talks about how you know the squirrel eats those it saves up those air those acorns which are higher fat and higher carb um and and it's you know it stores that for the winter and you store a little bit more fat and, and as humans we're constantly eating for winter and the winter never comes because seasonal fruits and vegetables don't matter we can get them flown in for anywhere from anywhere and so um we're just we're always eating for winter for a winter that never comes and we wonder why you know we're so obese and we have all these modern um modern day diseases that were really probably just um a side effect of the 100 one of the interesting things just through our couple conversations here is that i feel like you've truly become a renaissance man, right? Like if you look at, you know, you look, you, you might you look at your Instagram, it's like, okay, this guy is kind of a power lifter, bodybuilder, big guy, you know, very cut. But it's also clear that you've thought about philosophy, raising well-raised children. Uh, how do you keep getting exposed to new information? How do you keep learning? I suspect that one of the secrets that, you know, for for folks that post podcasts, like I think getting the opportunity to use this platform to talk and have conversations with really interesting people is like a secret cheat code to get exposed to the information and learn. But beyond perhaps just the podcast as a platform to talk to really interesting people, how do you keep the information flow fresh? How do you, you know, what are you gravitating towards these days as you're continuing to learn and evolve as a human? I, I noticed, man, it's kind of crazy. I noticed that, that there's a lot of people that are that have similar interests to me they're interested in nutrition but just like you jeff like you're interested in nutrition but you know you have a much more uh obviously in-depth knowledge of it and and of systems and and all that but like you know we both like philosophy um and you know there's other things that we have that we're like-minded and so the podcast is definitely like you said a cheat code like like i said it's it's the most selfish thing that I do that I have the ability and right now the way social media is and the way the 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 distance that that one has to travel to get in touch with anyone in the world is so short you know you're only one or two degrees away from anybody you want to talk to um, and and if I wanted to talk to someone it seems to me that the only barrier is me because like there have been times when I've wanted to talk to people and I've, I've said, you know what, I'm not ready to talk to that person yet. You know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not well versed enough. And then, you know, six months later when I feel like it's time, all I had to do was ask and they come on. 
which is amazing. But um, obviously books like I try to read like and listen to. And I definitely think that the way I'm learning now is changing a little bit because in the last five years, the amount of books that I've listened to has completely eclipsed the amount of books I've read. You know, I'll, I'll listen to like 50 books a year, but I only read like five or six books a year, you know, and, and um, I'm trying to change that. I'm trying to do more um, reading with listening, but at the same time, it, you know, it costs more money that way. But if, you know, reading a book at 1.5 or two speed, um, while you listen to it at 1.5 or two speed and reading it, um, I found that's really helpful. But if I were to look through my um, my audible wish list, the majority of it of it right now is um, is personal development, you know, leadership. Um, I just read a really good book called The Power of a Positive No. So I just basically I think like in my whole life, what I've done is is like when I was in high school, I my dad, my dad walked up to the coach of University of Miami. And at the time, like they had like four NFL caliber running backs and, and he gave him the film and the guys, you know, Coach Coker was the assistant. He was a offensive coordinator. And at the time he's like, you know, your son has some good skills, but he's never going to play here, you know? And, and my dad asked him like, what, what should he do? And he's like, work on speed, get his 40 down to like a four, five, four, four and, and do this. And so what I've found in my life is like, if I can just find what is it, what is it that I need to learn? And, and then, then work backwards from that. Um, and then another really good book for that is, I don't know if you've, um, read or heard of ultra learning. Mm. No, I haven't. Oh, fantastic book. It's uh, it's about this group of people around the world that that they learn, they learn things at a very high level in a short period of time, like two to three months, and it it, it starts with something that I've always done. I just didn't know what how to name it, and that's just meta learning. You know, like what do I need to learn, and how do I need to learn it? How do I need to learn for this specific project? Um, and so if it's, you know, learning Portuguese because I'm fluent in Portuguese or if it's, um, you know, even really anything in life, you know, I just I just kind of. So, so for example, the whole reason I brought this story up is last year, what I found was is my first full year in business for myself. And I was like drifting throughout the year. I was just every single opportunity was the right opportunity and every single person that asked me for something I said yes and when I started to really think about it at the end of last year and do my planning for this year I was like man I really need to I really need to say no more how does that look and and how how can I do that and I found this book after reading um living forward by um by Michael C. Hyatt he mentioned this book by William Urry called A Power of a Positive No. And William Urry is like a, I believe he's a doctor. He's, um, he is a negotiator for just like crisis negotiator. Like he would, he would negotiate between Venezuela and, and another country or, or Venezuela and the UN or something like that and, and other countries throughout the world. And he talks about how we need to balance relationship with power and that was my problem was last year i was so focused on preserving a relationship that i never really preserved my power and at the same time because i said yes and i and i didn't preserve my power i actually hurt the relationship because you know i'm not going to do my best work and i'm probably going to let someone down if i'm overstretched so those little things just having the ability to say to myself winners don't lose they learn so and I tell this big, big 
thing for my boys is winners don't lose, they learn. Um, you know, even if you're you you lose, but you're able to take that and you turn it into something else. And if you're talking about stoicism, it's the same thing. It's a morphati. It's it's you know, accept your fate. Everything that happens to you is either good or necessary. So if something doesn't go your way or if you fail, that's okay. It's a learning experience. And so it's just this consistent passion for learning and luckily the school system didn't beat it down and you know grad school didn't beat it down um and i survived in spite of it but for my kids i want them to be in the best position so i'm going to raise them free and um and at this point i'm going to say something really divisive but i don't care i honestly think that if i were to leave my kids alone completely and just love them um for their formative years that they would be better off if they went to the school I mean, that's just how I feel. I just feel like schooling kills our love of learning. And, you know, it's 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 hard to do. Like if you're not if you can't homeschool, then you have to spend a good amount of time every night with your child really trying to understand, like, what are you learning in school? How do you feel about that? What are your interests? Because, you know, if not, they just kind of float through the system. Um, and the system is designed to push them through regardless of whether they're they're prepared or they're able to go to the next level. So, um, yeah, that's just that's what I think about that. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I want to unpack that a little bit because I think it's controversial, but I don't I think when you inspect this thought a little bit more, I think it's shouldn't be that surprising. I think it's actually a very similar system as the modern healthcare system where I would say that there's no individual bad actor in the healthcare system, right? I don't think that doctors want to be bad doctors. I don't think insurance companies want to be, I mean, I don't know about insurance companies, but like ripping people off. I don't think pharmaceutical companies want to be just gouging people perhaps. I, I Maybe at the... A lot of the a lot of the people at the highest levels they don't I don't think they do um, I'm sorry to interrupt but I just I was on an I was on an awards trip in Turks and Caicos and I was talking to the guide who's from Canada and and he was a, he was just a guide and and I said you know I love what I do I, I sell devices it's it's in the female pelvis it's for things that that we have to do procedures and I'm like at least I'm not selling statins. And I didn't know that the guy behind me was like the the guy who basically launched one of the biggest statins in the in the world. And he was like, well, hold on there a second. Statins are just and and the truly I really think they truly believe a lot of them truly believe that, you know, what the science that they're seeing is reality. Sorry, I just I had to say that because it's I do think it's a lot of them are not bad intention. 100%. Yeah, I, 100%. I think everyone is the hero in their own storybook, whether that's self-rationalization or genuine belief that intervention X is net good for the world. And I, I bring up that analogy because that's something that is, again, much more, I think, well-versed within the health wellness space. But you see a similar dynamic within education where outcomes are pretty bad, right? Like it's American investment in education dollar per pupil and then outcomes of those students against other countries benchmarks is quite poor uh again i don't think teachers are trying to not teach well i don't think principals are trying not to do a good job i think people are trying to invest in the right ways um but the, it's it's not necessarily working so i think just from that level i don't think what you said is should be controversial right so, yeah, 
I mean, any, any other, you want to put any other feedback or thoughts on that? I mean, I think it's, again, I think it's a question of convenience and possibility. Like, I think most of us, again, don't necessarily want to choose an unhealthy lifestyle. I think most of us wish we had more time to go exercise or go to the gym or be outdoors or travel. Most of us wish we could spend more time investing to our children. And I think, again, one of the interesting insights when I've been talking to a lot of my friends who have young kids and we're thinking about having nannies or babysitters or, or whatnot, it's that the best investment you can give your kid is your own time, right? And then if you're outsourcing that kind of formative experience, their principles, their values, even their, like the language, right? If a lot of people, you know, might hire a cheaper, maybe a foreign language speaking nanny. And it's like a little bit interesting to think about that if this is one of the most important projects to call a child, a project might be too, 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 too curt, too curt. But, 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 but it is some, it is an important part of your life and, and an important responsibility outsourcing it in a way that you know might not be the highest caliber of a outsourced labor is kind of a weird way to think about what should be one of the most important if not the most important project that you undertake oh my gosh there's a there's a there's a saying that we love um and it's by one of my favorite if you want to go down the rabbit hole on the origins of our modern compulsory school system and just um just the, this this whole system that we so many people assume is one, I think it's hilarious that people assume it's broken. It's not broken. It's working just as it was designed. Um, so that's the first thing. And two, the, that they would consider something such as homeschooling or even unschooling, which is what we do, um, which is much more radical because it's even more child-led. It's even more centered around the child and following the child. Um, if you think that's radical and you don't think that leaving your child with complete strangers for, you know, six, seven, eight hours a day for 15 years of their life. To me, that sounds like the most radical thing that you could ever do. Like I, I and, and I, I say this not to judge anyone because, you know, there, there are, I'm a very blessed person that I was able to have the comfort um, that I had when we started homeschooling um, Desmond. But then at the same time, I also do think that in life we have to make choices. And, you know, I think to myself, what's the type of life that I want to live? And, and the life that I want to live is, is definitely one that's much more involved with my kids. You know, we see our kids all the time. We're with them a lot. And so I, I just think that, you know, for me and for us, it works very well. And a lot of people are not going to be able to do what we do. But then at the same time, I'm very aware that if, if I had to pick, you know, one of the major problems that, that modern society has, it's this, this self-limiting thinking. And, and people are not really aware. And I, I don't even think they're able to process when I say your, your thoughts are holding you back and your limiting thoughts are holding you back. I think a lot of people look at that in a way like, like that doesn't apply to me. And a lot of people think that maybe maybe what they think is their idea <laughs> and their whole worldview is their idea. And they're not really aware that that that, you know, how else to say it other than they've I guess they've been programmed. I mean, it's I, I don't know how else to say it, but like, you know, you have been the culture that you have been raised in has told you that the key to success is this, 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 and this. And if you follow that, that you're going to do well. Meanwhile, the people talking about this or the people at the top have never followed that path. 
and it's so weird like you think of bill gates you think of all the people like you know einstein all of them were homeschooled the guy who's one of the guys who sequenced the human genome was was homeschooled and and um and so this this modern school system that we have is 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 really only 150 years old and and that's pretty radical to me but like if there's one thing that forget about schooling forget about just just try to think about what are what's holding you back because i can tell you from my experience that you know i i was doing um medical device rep medical device sales for nearly a decade i had i had won rookie of the year at two companies but i had never won that pinnacle that president's club or and and the reason why is i remember very clearly looking at people on stage and either in the back of my mind kind of saying you know what i can do very very well but i don't think i don't think i'm ever going to be up there and the year that I decided, I remember seeing that picture of that beach on Turks and Caicos at the national meeting. I texted my wife and I said, we're going to Turks and Caicos next year, watch. And every single week, like I I rewired my brain. And, and, and these are the type of things that I'm really interested in right now. Um, because for example, today I'm in day 25 of a 100 burpee a day challenge that someone challenged me to. And on day 25, you just don't want to do it. And, and so what I did was I smiled and I kept telling myself in my head before every rep, I love this. I love this. I love this. I love this. And not only did I finish the workout, but I freaking dominated the workout. So there's so many things that we can do that are well within our reach. And I know that it sounds abstract right now. There's obviously a plan to be worked. There's a process that you got to follow. There's consistency, but it starts with the way we think. And a lot of the time it just so happens that the way we think, um, is, is crippled by the way we were raised. And so we weren't raised. Um, you know, I remember my, my, my parents are immigrants, you know, I'm, I'm the first person born in this country. My dad didn't graduate from high school. He dropped out to go sell shoes. My mom didn't go to college, you know? So I was told that I needed to go to college. And then I, when I was in college, they were like, I wanted to study history. And my parents were like, what are you going to do with history? And so I was like, well, I guess I'll do political science. And, and they were like, oh, that's great. You can be a lawyer. Um, and, <laughs> and then I, we, we, we had lunch. I remember having lunch with my dad and his friend and his friend's son who were both lawyers. And after that meeting, I said, I don't want to be a lawyer, you know? And so I guess I've had this streak in me and I, I guess it's easier for some than for others, but at least at the very least question what you think, you know, um, and, and, and really realize that that self-limiting thoughts this is why people like uh what's his name who does these huge events uh tony robbins does so well because he gets people to i've never been to an event but i kind of get the idea of what he's doing and and like people leave those events and and you know to a person everybody's like oh my gosh i feel so much better because you actually realize that so much of what you think is true is a lie and so much of what you think that you're capable of you're way you're capable of way more well said yeah and i think it might sound abstract to folks who haven't tested and pushed the limits but i think once you start realizing that some of the arbitrary rules of society or that other people have placed on you or if you've placed on yourself and you realize that these are very malleable some things that you can actually control and manipulate i think what you just said, Danny, I think just really resonates. It's like you can kind of create the reality that you want to live. Now, I'm going to 
ask my, my last question here, which is obviously the Turks and Caicos experience was seminal to the, I guess, a previous era in your life. What's the Turks and Caicos of 2020, of, uh, of the next upcoming months? I guess that would that question really means like you know how how would I define success now? Um, because that's like you know that's like kind of like a when you get to that you climb that mountain and you win that trip. I mean, there's so much in there beyond just the trip. You know, it's the feeling. And also, um, I did want to mention the fact that doing doing things and and really believing in yourself and and getting rid of that those self limiting thoughts is actually very practical as well. You know, so it's not just from a utilitarian standpoint, like if you if you start to do these things, you increase your belief because you actually start to do them. And so now you got some momentum. Um, my, um, my view of this now is, I remember when I quit my job, my wife was like, does this mean that you're gonna be with us more? You know, like, cause I know that's kind of what you're saying, but I don't think you understand what goes into this, you know? And, and I was like, no, 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 I'm gonna be with you so much more and blah, blah, blah. And, and, and that's just not true because I went from a nine to five to a five to nine, you know? Like I, I'm thinking about my business a lot. Like I, I put my phone down at 7 p.m. every single night religiously and on the weekends um, it's even earlier so I can disconnect, but, um, but it's true, like while I have been home more, because a lot of times I'm working from home, you know, I've even said it, you know, I, I just say sometimes like, guys, if I'm in the office, I want you to assume that I'm not here because I'm getting into like a flow here and I, I don't want to like break that flow down. So, you know, for me, the um, true success, if I'm being truly um, just honest, would be for me to find something that would allow me to spend instead of, I don't know, 60 to 70% of my time working and the other 30 to 40% with my family, I would be happier than anybody in the world if, if I could flip that. And um, I, I know that like, um, I believe in, in delayed gratification. And, um, but then at the same time, I also have to be very mindful that I'm not building something that's unscalable or unsustainable because if I just, for example, focused on coaching, then I would be on my phone at all times and I just can't do that. So I don't quite know what it takes to get there. I mean, I have, I have a very specific goal for this year and I have a very specific, like specific two little businesses that, that I'm working on, on building. Um, but you know, you, you never know with business, there's so much out of your control and, and you always have to like pivot and um, it just has to be maintaining my priorities and staying focused and not allowing myself to just drift like I did last year. 100%. Well, this is a wonderful conversation. I, I've always enjoyed like the discursive content and just the exploration around so many aspects of human I would say a human experience. It might be one way to put it across parenthood to philosophy to nutrition and fitness. Um, let's definitely continue the conversation. I feel like this could be a rolling conversation. Heck yeah. yeah. Where do people follow, follow along and tune in? Yeah. So, so um, I'm, I'm very active on Instagram. So that's dannyvega.ms. Um, and then on our website, our website is fatfuel.family. That's where you can find our podcast. That's where you can, I actually just removed coaching from the website. So I'm not taking coach. I'm not taking on clients, but people can do a consult with me if they want. And that's where you can find our podcast. And, um, and that's pretty much it. I mean, um, 
now Mauda has me on TikTok because one of the other things that you got to do is you don't want to be the last guy. And this is kind of like one of the pressures that I, I don't really love about this type of business is that you always got to be, <laughs> you know, catching up. And I'm like, what the heck am I going to do on TikTok? And she's like, well, what if, what if, you know, the algorithm screws you up and now you, you, I mean, there's, you always got to kind of be at least have a placeholder when these new trends come up. So, um, so it's dannyvega.ms on TikTok and don't expect to see me dancing, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're ahead of me on that one. I don't know if I'm ever going to go on TikTok. I know, maybe I know. I don't know why I did it. She, you know what it was? My wife was like, she was like, Get on TikTok. I've been on for two weeks and I have 3,000 followers and now she's like almost at seven. But but my wife is gorgeous and she can dance and she does dance videos and she does workout videos and she adds all these effects. And I'm like, this is just the type of content that, yeah, it's too much. I, I don't have time to, to do workout videos on TikTok, 15 second workout videos. Like if you open it up, it is just it's indicative of where we are as a culture right now. Uh, you know, 15 second videos um, and just nonstop. And then interestingly also people doing duets. So like, like the whole thing is, is challenges and, 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 and parroting what's, what, what other people are doing. And I'm not totally with that. <laughs> All right, Danny, thanks so much. We'll, have, we'll talk to you soon. Thank you guys. If you're interested to learn more about HVMN, visit www.hvmn.com slash pod. Thank you for tuning in.